0: Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. This is one of your hosts, Asia Bonilla.
1: And I'm Charles Sheelan, the other host.
0: And today we will be discussing the first seven chapters of Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters by Rick Riordan. For those of you who are new, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network that takes a book club approach to reading and rereading young adult literature.
1: Yep, we're best friends and we've always wanted to share certain childhood and adolescent books with each other. So we figured we'd do that and share those discussions with anyone else who wants to join in.
0: We're starting with books that one of us hasn't read and the other has. And in sixth grade, I read the Percy Jackson series. Also, our newcomer to the book series, in this case, Charles, will be giving a brief summary of the chapters we've covered in case you weren't able to read along with us.
1: Yeah, so I'm still on summary duty, even though we've moved on from The Lightning Thief, because I'm still new to this series. I'm very ready to pass on summary duty to Asia, but you know, it does help me when I'm organizing my notes. Anyway, let me get into the summary for the first seven chapters of Sea of Monsters. So in chapter one, Percy wakes up from a dream about Grover, and he's all excited to go back to Camp Half-Blood after his last day of school, and his mom says they have to delay going back to Camp Half-Blood. In the next chapter, we spend a day at Percy's new school, and Percy and his best friend Tyson are being bullied, and then some strangers show up who turn into monsters, and they attack Percy. Of course, after destroying the gym and Tyson helping him to not die, Annabeth shows up because, of course. And then in chapter three, they get on a very spooky taxi that Annabeth has somehow summoned, and all three of them head to Camp Half-Blood, which happens to be under attack. In chapter four, there's a big fist fight against two Robobulls, and we find out there's some new staff at the camp. Then it's revealed that Tyson is a cyclops and Talia's tree is in danger, the tree that protects Camp Half-Blood. In chapter five, we get a little bit of a reintroduction to Camp Half-Blood. Chiron leaves. We meet Tantalus, the new head of activities, and Tyson is actually claimed as the son of Poseidon or Percy's half-brother. Chapter six, we get this incredibly dangerous game of chariot races, and these awful birds attack everyone and start eating them. But Percy and Annabeth are smarter than everyone else, and they save the day. And then in Chapter 7, Percy and Annabeth figure out that Grover has found the Golden Fleece and that it can save Camp Half-Blood, but Tantalus gives the quest to retrieve the fleece to Clarice. But no worries, Hermes shows up in the middle of the night. He tells Percy, go ahead, save Grover and Luke and Camp Half-Blood. He gives them some gifts, and that's where we finished. And as usual, I'll start with my immediate impressions. And as per usual with these books, it's been that there's a lot of action really quickly. I've found with The Lightning Thief and so far with The Sea of Monsters that we have a lot of action very quickly. And that sort of feeds into a light, dark motif that we've been seeing in, we see in like young adult literature, but specifically in this series. For example, Tantalus is bad. He's been given zero redeeming qualities And Percy is great. Percy's a kind man. He's clever and talented, and he doesn't tolerate bullies. And I think that the constant action that we've been getting where Percy is attacked helps to feed into that, because Percy's always on the right side of every fight, and it's very clear who's always on the wrong side. And because we're in New York, I had to shout out that Percy lives near the two train near 72nd Street, which is one of the trains that we take all the time. And we used to go get groceries right across from that train station. But anyway, before I keep, you know, prattling on, I want to hear your thoughts, Asia, especially since you've read this before. How much of it did you remember?
0: So in contrast to The Lightning Thief, where I definitely had a much more clear idea of the entire book, for The Sea of Monsters, I more remembered things as I was reading. And I know in the last episode, I kind of mentioned how I probably wasn't going to remember as much in these next couple of books. But for example, when I first read about Percy's dream of Grover, I couldn't remember exactly what had happened to him. But right before it was revealed, I remembered it came to me and that remembering just that one detail caused me to remember a lot more things that happen in this book as well as other books. So kind of once I had one detail, it was able to trigger other memories. So I don't know if that really makes sense, but I'm basically just trying to say that I think I'm going to remember more of this book than I originally hinted at, but that was definitely my first impression of the first seven chapters at least.
1: Well, we'll see how that pans out for the rest of the book, but I feel I feel similarly, or I expect to feel similarly, on some of the books that I picked out. I think that I'll probably feel the same way, where I won't think I'll know it, but plot points will sort of trigger memories. But we'll see. I want to start at the beginning again, back into Pro- Grover's dream, or Percy's dream of Grover. He says that he's in St. Augustine, or he's right off the coast of St. Augustine, and for those of you who love trivia, St. Augustine is the oldest city in the United States. Um and it's where my grandparents live, so I used to go to see them. I still go to see them all the time. And so who knows, maybe I've been to the beach where Grover enters the water. Anyway, want to start there because of course. But let's talk about a little bit about that dream because I was reading it and I was definitely convinced that it was real. Percy has this dream about Grover. And I think that this dream is important and real. And I want to know what you thought, Asia.
0: Well, the dream is definitely important and real, as we learn later in the first couple of chapters, because just how in The Lightning Thief, Percy, a lot of his dreams, that's how he learned about Kronos and Luke and everything they were plotting. So it's definitely something that's important. But I'm definitely... That when he talked about the dream, that's when I was like, I'm pretty sure he's being held somewhere. It's like, where is he being held? I won't get too much into it yet, but it's definitely important. And it's basically the whole plot for this book. But I wanted to talk about about in chapter one, how just going back on the whole foreshadowing in these books and how it's clearly made for children, just how at the I believe at the end of chapter one, Percy says to the reader um, about when his mother is talking to him about something to do with Camp Half-Blood and how she'll talk to him after school. And he says, how little did I know that I would not be speaking to my mom after this. And I wouldn't even be going home later. Like it just really points again to how this is made for children, like letting you know something bad is about to happen. Very clear.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of foreshadowing. Like Tyson, for example, we meet him, I guess, in chapter two. But uh, I was suspicious that there was something up with Tyson as soon as it was revealed that he was bigger than a teenager. I was like, we had that with Grover last time. He had more facial hair than the average 12-year-old. So we knew that there was something up with him. I felt the same way about Tyson. They were like, he's big. And I was like, okay, He's different.
0: Yeah, everything with Tyson was definitely suspicious as him being some in some way part of the Greek mythological world. But for me, the fact that they mention how Percy's mother has been calling social services to try and get him help since he's supposedly homeless and social social services claims that Tyson doesn't exist because they point to that they can't find him. They say that he lives um, in a box in an alleyway. And they're like, they've gone to that alleyway. He definitely doesn't live there. So that definitely points to him likely being part of the Half-Blood world. And I know for me, I remembered that there was something off about him, but I remember specifically that he was a Cyclops. And I don't know if this is right or not, because I'm not as well-versed in Greek myths as Charles is. But I just remember there being something about being um about Cyclops that are softies and scared and cry a lot. And so maybe that's him, even though he's giant and strong, he's also always crying, always being bullied. And so that also kind of helped me remember. I don't know if that's accurate, but that helped me remember that he was a Cyclops.
1: So this might be like an impossible question. Did you Well, actually, I'll save it for when we get to the reveal. I want to ask you a little more about like knowing he was a Cyclops.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, I was going to say also, um, going back to what I talked about, the foreshadowing, also the idea of when Percy hears his name being whispered at school by a girl, a female voice, I immediately was like, that has to be Annabeth, like, He has one main female friend from Camp Half-Blood, Annabeth, and we know that she has her Yankees cap that can make her invisible, so it would make sense that if he would have heard some weird female semi-familiar voice and he didn't see who said his name, it would make sense that it was Annabeth.
1: Yeah, I felt that. I felt it was a little on the nose. Like, oh, your best friend happens to turn invisible and you hear a voice? Like, it was almost too easy, but... Mm -hmm. geared towards a younger audience makes perfect sense and there was another one of those moments in that same chapter where it was a little too easy to identify the bad guys i wrote down this exact line where percy says he's talking about the the bullies who are not from the school and percy says no human beings have names like that and i literally wrote in my notes well then they can't be humans like that's obvious
0: Yeah, also in that scene how Tyson could smell the kids and he said something like, Percy, those kids like smell weird or something. Just like how in The Lightning Thief, Grover can smell when monsters are coming. So that's also something to pointing that Tyson has to be a part of the world if he's also got these signs going on.
1: Yeah, I agree. Like there, there were it was evidently clear early on that there was something up with Tyson but I didn't realize he was a cyclops at all until it was revealed. That kind of came out of left field. But I'm skipping ahead to that. I think we should save it for when we get to that chapter. Chapter 3 is the taxi and we have the the numbers.
0: Yes. In chapter 3, the only thing I really highlighted in my notes were that the three old ladies give Percy four numbers which were 30, 31, 75, and 12. And they say how they know what Percy seeks. So since they said they know what Percy seeks and they gave him a set of numbers, my immediate assumption is that those numbers must be some sort of coordinates for a location.
1: That's the same thing. Also, that's all I wrote down. And that was also what I figured they must be latitude, longitude coordinates, especially because latitude and longitude is normally four numbers it's like the minutes and seconds east west or north south Mm -hmm. of the equator in the prime meridian so i was sure that they were coordinates and lo and behold we'll see in a second that that was actually true but that was the only thing i wrote down for chapter three as well for the shadow taxi
0: yes and then in chapter four they get to Camp Halfblood, and there's the huge fight, and we find out that Talia's tree has been poisoned.
1: Okay, hold up. Do we know it was poisoned? Because everyone's been saying it was poisoned, but the way it happens in the book, they finish the fight, Percy looks up, he sees the tree is withering, and he's like, the tree had been poisoned. And I'm like, you're not a botanist. You don't know anything. It could have just been overwatered.
0: A botanist? <laughs>
1: I mean, I I don't know. I'm probably overthinking it. And I'm sure that it's poison. And I feel like that's probably a minor detail in the grand scheme of the book. But I was, I was, it, it was a little too suspension of disbelief for me, for Percy just to see the tree and be like, ah, it was poisoned. I'm aware.
0: But wasn't, didn't they say that the tree was bleeding or something? Or there was some kind of green ooze coming out of it?
1: Still, I, I don't know if I would go with to, I don't know if I would jump to the word "poison." When, I, when my plants are looking bad, I don't assume that some evil fly poisoned my plants.
0: OK, well, Charles, this is a book, so the tree was most likely, if not definitely, poison.
1: <laughs> okay, whatever. I'll just have to believe you in that. Now, finally, let's get to the Cyclops, because. We get revealed right after that, uh, or it is revealed to us, that Tyson is a Cyclops. And like I said, I didn't see that coming.
0: I Did you see it coming? Well, I know on their car ride, Annabeth makes comments about him of, like, Percy, we're going to bring that with us. at any During any of those points, did you think Cyclops, or you just knew he was some kind of monster?
1: I just knew he was some kind of monster. I definitely did not. I didn't think – the word Cyclops did not enter my brain until it was written down. So I noticed all the red flags. I'm looking at the cover of the book right now. I'm like, there's a Cyclops right there.
0: But, <laughs> well, it only shows one eye. That could be one of two eyes, so you wouldn't know.
1: Yeah, but it's centered. It's a third eye. <laughs> I,
0: that makes sense. Because I think that the only reason I knew is because I have read the book before. And so once I remembered, I remember this book is about Cyclopses, Cyclops. What's the plural of Cyclops? Is it Cyclopses? That doesn't sound right.
1: No, it's Cyclopes.
0: Cyclopes. So, okay.
1: So basically, if you take the word Cyclops and you put an E after the P before the S, it becomes Cyclopes. I believe that's correct, because Cyclops is sounds that,
0: so dumb. Yeah. That's not right. Okay, well, we'll just say Cyclops from now on, even though that sounds kind of weird too, but that works.
1: I'm like 99% sure it's Cyclopes, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's how it's written. I'm 99% sure that's how it's said.
0: Okay. But for Tyson specifically, he's one of the homeless orphans of the Cyclopes, and he's a child of a nature spirit and what Annabeth says is of one god in particular gets with these nature spirits. And these children are considered mistakes. They're unwanted. And they usually grow up on the streets in big cities.
1: Yeah, the, I just didn't even, like it didn't even occur to me. Like, again, I knew that he was a, like, I know that there was something off with Tyson, but the idea that like the mist could affect Percy So that he couldn't identify the third eye. That's something that it makes sense now, sort of in a retrospective view that, Mm -hmm. yeah, the mist can still affect demigods. And as we talked about in the last book, that the mist, a lot of it has to do with how much you are willing to like imagine things. Mm -hmm. And so Percy, you know, at his school is not going to look for a monster. So that way the mist can still act on him. But I did like that we got like a little bit of an introduction that you were talking about the homeless orphans that Tyson is a specific type of Cyclops rather yeah. than all of the Cyclops Cyclopes are one way or the other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I thought like you said about the mist and everything and Percy even says he never even noticed because he'd never really taken a good look at Tyson's face because it was just so ugly. So he never really looked, I think he said, past his nose. So he'd never noticed that he only had one eye instead of two.
1: Which has to do with, like, the, it was so, like, the miss like, he doesn't want to see more.
0: Yeah, I guess. Well, anyway, moving on. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Tantalus, which he is just awful. Like, only in a book would they let someone like Tantalus who is clearly evil be in charge of a bunch of children at a, at a summer camp.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like that, the level of evil and the almost the ridiculousness or ridiculity of someone like that being in charge is completely fictional and, or we have to hope that it's fictional because that was ridiculous. It was Totally, I mean, I'm I'm always going to have Harry Potter references, but like we talk about Snape a lot as like, like the way he treats students is absolutely insane. And that would never happen in the real world.
0: Well, yeah, you said Harry Potter. It makes me think of the scene in Matilda mm-hmm. in the movie when the headmaster, I'm pre- pretty sure there's a scene where she like swings one of the students by her ponytail in the air, like Things that, if that happened in real life, like, social services would be called. Like, that headmaster would go to jail. Yeah. you know, only in fiction.
1: Yeah, like, the level of rudeness and... It was insane. But...
0: Just terrifying. Yeah.
1: Well, anyway, I had to do some digging into Tantalus because I couldn't remember the part of mythology he was from. But I think that Tantalus is one of Zeus's sons, but he's a mortal. He's not a a demigod and so he like tried to eat dinner with the gods and Zeus was like that's way above your station Uh -uh uh-uh-uh so he punished him to always be hungry like he'd always be in reach of food but maybe I'm getting that wrong but if that was me I would be bitter too because being hungry is awful but doesn't give an excuse to be horrible
0: well also I mean I know I don't want to jump ahead but in chapter seven I believe mm-hmm. Tantalus tells the myth, which we can just assume is about himself, about mm-hmm. how he eats with the gods. And I think he says, I think when he eats with the gods, he's like sick of people talking back to him and his children, complaining mm-hmm. all the time. So he feeds his children to the gods. And so that's why his punishment is that he can never eat or drink again.
1: Ugh, terrible.
0: But. Just with Tantalus, I just cannot understand, even though they said, when we speak to Chiron, he says that the gods feel they need someone to punish for the poisoning of Talia's tree. But I just don't understand that even if they needed to punish Chiron, why would they choose of all people, Tantalus, who is literally someone who's a prisoner in the fields of punishment, to run the camp?
1: Only in fiction.
0: And of course, (laughs) yes, only in fiction. And of course, one of the first things he does as activities director is brings back the extremely dangerous chariot races where campers have been killed and mutilated in the past. And by doing this, he also is distracting the campers from protecting the border of the camp that is currently down because of the poisoning of the tree. So overall, it just seems sketchy And I just, I really want to know why he was picked. And I hope we'll find out later in the book. There's something I don't remember why he was picked. So hopefully that's explored.
1: I didn't even think about it that way, that what he's doing is intentionally distracting the campers from the danger. So that's a good indicator that some god was influenced because I'm sure it's the gods who pick who is the activities director.
0: Yeah. So maybe somebody kind of how like Ares in the last book was influenced, which going back to the idea of maybe Kronos is behind this. I wanted to talk about how I can't remember who says it. Oh, I think Chiron says that the poison used probably came from deep in the pits of Tartarus, which is why Percy suspects that Kronos and Luke are behind the poisoning because Kronos is currently a prisoner in the pits of Tartarus. So that would make perfect sense.
1: Which is so true. But when I was reading it, I was like, it's too obvious. We're just told that the poison is from the pits of Tartarus. So that just seems too clear. I literally wrote in my notes, I was like, because of that, it's exactly why Kronos is not responsible. But maybe I'm like conspiracy theorizing too much.
0: Well, this is something again. I I'm honestly not sure. So, I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. And so then, at the end of that chapter, Poseidon claims Tyson as his son, which is very surprising. And since he is claimed, that means that Tyson and Percy are brothers, which means they'll live in the same cabin. And this also points to what Annabeth mentioned earlier when she was talking about the homeless cyclopes and how they're unwanted and how it's the product of nature spirits and one god in particular, which must have been referring to Percy. Not Percy, Poseidon. Must have been referring to Poseidon in particular. And I was just wondering if since Poseidon as part of the big three, since they made that pact that they couldn't have, that they're not supposed to have children with mortals, if because of that, he decided to get cozy with nature spirits instead. I don't know if you have anything for that.
1: Again, that makes perfect sense. Not one of the things I thought about Poseidon's coziness, but that makes perfect sense. I did think that, When it was revealed that most of the homeless orphans are Poseidon's illegitimate children, I did feel like Annabeth probably could have given Percy a little bit of a heads up. Yeah, She was like, they're mostly from one god. And I was like, and we know that Percy is Poseidon's son. Like, didn't feel like you could have warned him a little (laughs) bit? But anyway, we'll forgive Annabeth because she's my favorite character because she's the best. But, team Athena all the way. I... Did like, though, that Percy does have a pretty human reaction about Tyson being claimed. He's super embarrassed because, you know, Tyson is a Cyclops and he's lumbering and he's not a demigod. And having Tyson be in his cabin makes him less special. And not that I'm saying that Percy's conceited, but I'm sure he likes being special. Like, obviously he doesn't like being alone in the cabin, as we got last book. But it's kind of nice to be, you know the only big three kid and he's really talented so i un- i liked that percy had a little bit of an embarrassed slash jealous slash vain reaction because that was very human he could have it could have been like too good for percy to it would have been possible for ter- percy to be like yay i have a brother but that wouldn't have actually been realistic for how people would actually respond mm-hmm. but why did they put tyson in a cabin anyway he's not a demigod
0: Well, why wouldn't they have put him in a cabin just because he's... Poseidon claimed him.
1: And that's the only reason I think that they probably would put him in because, like, that was a very active message from Poseidon. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Claiming him as his own.
1: Yeah, with the trident, very dramatic. But he's not a demigod. The people who live at Camp Half-Blood are all heroes in training. And Tyson isn't that. So, I mean, I'm glad they didn't discriminate against him and put him, you know, like... (laughs) You get to live outside, Mr. Monster. But I feel like... I don't know. I just feel like they needed somewhere to put him for a couple nights before they, you know, (laughs) go off on Chapter 7, Chapter 8. But it didn't really feel accurate for what the camp is for.
0: Mm -hmm. And it does seem like most of the campers and everyone seems pretty uncomfortable around Tyson. But specifically Annabeth... How she reacts to him, it just makes me think that she must have had some kind of bad experience with a Cyclops because she just seems to really not like them.
1: Yeah, I didn't notice that, but I believe you. And now thinking back, I can see that there were those little moments. I'm sure that Grover doesn't like them, but that's probably because he's about to get eaten by one. So Yeah. And let's talk about that empathy link that he called it. I had to write that down, Empathy Link, to link him and Percy, which seems pretty powerful, but also potentially very dangerous.
0: Yes, this part in the book, I remember as I was reading, right before they revealed what was happening, I remembered everything. I remembered that Grover is being held in a cave and he's with the giant cyclops which i couldn't remember his name until they said in the book which is polyphemus which is the giant cyclops from the odyssey it's the cyclops that odysseus faces and i remember that specifically and the idea of how grover is pretending to be a girl cyclops that wants to marry polyphemus so that he can stay alive and Polyphemus won't eat him. But I was just so proud of myself that I was right in that moment and I remembered it before I actually read it.
1: I just wanna say Grover in drag as a Cyclops. I'm here for it. Talk about body positivity in this book. And for those of you who don't remember, because I had to just double check, the Polyphemus story in the Odyssey is Odysseus gets sta- stranded on an island with a bunch of men and they're in the cave of a cyclops polyphemus and he's eating humans left and right and odysseus tells him that his name is nobody so then the cyclops eventually like gets drunk odysseus very painfully puts a lance into polyphemus's singular eye so he's now blind and polyphemus goes running around town saying that nobody hurt him and so then everyone just thinks he's possessed and that allows Odysseus to escape but actually Poseidon Polyphemus's father punishes Odysseus for that so wow we've got a little Odyssey connection but if for those of you who needed your mythology catch up I did a little I triple checked my story so that I would know what it was and then that puts us in chapter seven
0: yes our final chapter for this episode so the first thing I want to point out is in chapter seven I think it's Annabeth tells Percy the story of the Golden Fleece. And I can't even remember the boy's name in it, but the girl, Europa. Annabeth says how the guy, they fly on the flying ram, and when the two of them do, but when they get there, it's just the guy. And Percy's like, well, what happened to Europa? And Annabeth says, well, Europa fell off and died. Like, it doesn't matter. And Percy... (laughs) says well i'm sure it mattered to her and i'm just like of course of course the girl had to die but that that was my first impression for that chapter
1: yeah that's hysterical because i was um i was putting together like our script outline and i saw your note on like of course and i was like what is she talking about i was like oh wait of course it's the girl who dies of course like In mythology the girl dies and no one cares no one notices yeah that's not surprising at all and i want to go into another of course greek mythology of course the fact that the fleece that grover knows where it is it happens to save the exact problem they have they have a sick tree and apparently this thing can heal sick plants And like, of course, that's what they find. Like, of course, the one item that Grover finds is the solution to all their problems. It's almost too neat.
0: Well, I think somebody... Was it Annabeth? I think Annabeth says when Percy first tells her about his dream of Grover, she's like, no way, there's no way Grover just happened to end up with the one item that could save the camp. So I feel like riordan kind of recognizes the just wow like of course the of course moment like of course i think he recognizes it
1: oh i'm i'm sure he's a he's a clever man but i want to do a little hashtag world building moment and if we ever have a hashtag for this podcast obviously hashtag throwback paperback but also hashtag worldbuilding because i really loved the um bermuda triangle moment So we sort of have, like, the Sea of Monsters moves like Olympus. And I was like, you know what? I bet the Sea of Monsters is the Bermuda Triangle. And then the next line, it was revealed that the Sea of Monsters is the Bermuda Triangle. And I was like, wow, Charles, you get this book so well.
0: Yes. And Percy confirms that the numbers he received from the old ladies are the coordinates for where the Sea of Monsters or the Bermuda Triangle is.
1: Cha-ching.
0: So now that they know that that's where they need to go to save Grover and get the Golden Fleece to save the camp, they tell Tantalus they need to do a quest. And of course, Tantalus, this crazy man, says that Clarice should do the quest since she won the chariot races, despite the fact that Annabeth and Percy saved the campers from all being murdered by crazy Pigeons or birds or whatever it was. (laughs) And I'm just wondering why Tantalus would pick her. Like, obviously, she just won, but I don't know. I just, he was adamant that he wanted to pick her. So I just wonder if, does he think she'll fail? Because I just, I don't think he wants the camp to be saved.
1: Oh, I didn't even think about that. That makes a lot of sense that he doesn't, that he wants her to fail and he thinks she would. Because I was reading that. I was like, wait, Cantalus can just give the quest to someone else? That seems unfair. They put together all the pre-work. Like, how can he just <laughs> give it to someone else?
0: He did, they did the preparation. It's
1: like, it's like they wrote the book report and they made the poster. And then he's like, you know what? I think Clarice should give the presentation.
0: Yeah. Like, what?
1: Um, so that's what I was thinking about. But I think that that's actually a good thing to look for. Maybe he thinks she'll fail. But what I do like that Riordan did is that, well, I hope that we'll probably see more of Clarice in this book because they'll probably intersect with her and she'll probably be like, get out of my way. And which is kind of nice that we get a little more interaction with the characters because it's clear that she's going to be a character throughout the series. Like we met her in book one. We met Luke in book one. Like we meet characters and therefore they're going to stay with us. And I think it's nice that we'll actually like see her. I hope that we see her outside of the context of the camp because it'll just be nice to get more of her, and she's going to have a redemption arc over the course of, this, of these books. She's going to become a nice person, I'm sure of it.
0: Um, I don't know about that, but we'll see for sure. Also, with you saying, getting to know a little bit more about Clarice, something I just noticed overall in this book is there's a lot more of naming other characters. No one in particular has... Really stood out yet, but I know they've specifically named a character from uh, son, of, yeah, Hephaestus' son, which I I don't remember his name because he didn't really do anything yet. They also named the twin boys that yes. are Hermes' sons. So I just noticed that overall throughout these chapters and in this book, they've they're starting to build the Camp Half Blood world and really starting to name other characters besides like our main three characters, Clarice, like the bully, and then like Luke, the traitor so i just thought that was nice to starting to get more characters and hopefully we'll get to know them a little bit more
1: and and piggybacking on that i think that'll also help with making it interesting because remember when we were discussing the traitor in last book we were like well it's got to be luke because he's the only person percy would consider a friend whom we like aren't seeing up to date with so He's got to be the bad guy. But by adding more characters, we'll have the chance that, like, there'll be more confusion, more murkiness, which I think is good. And, like you said, it's world building.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, now, at the end of Chapter 7, Percy ends up meeting Hermes. And Hermes gives Percy a thermos with the four winds chewable vitamins and duffel bags for him Annabeth and Tyson and Hermy tells Percy that even though Tantalus didn't give them the quest he says they should still go and he tells Percy to go because he doesn't want him just to save the camp and Grover but he also hopes that he'll be able to save Luke as well And Hermes gives Percy this small speech about how you can never give up on your family. So I thought that was interesting because at this point, I I don't know if Luke is redeemable. He literally tried to murder Percy with a scorpion. But, you know, if Hermes says to not give up on your family, I guess we don't give up on our family
1: yeah i felt like that last line on family was pretty pointed especially because percy has a little bit of a complicated relationship with tyson and poseidon he like he's met poseidon and they seem to get along but it's not they're not chummy yet but he's also proud to be poseidon's son and he definitely is like has mixed feelings about being tyson's half brother so i feel like that line was pretty key and i just want to you know step out of the circle a little bit and talk about how everyone must hate Percy. Again, a little bit of Harry Potter syndrome, but, like, he is a celebrity. He's talented. He's famous. He's got everything going for him. He's one of a kind. And he's also constantly meeting famous people. He's constantly meeting the gods. Like, I think in book two of Harry Potter, or maybe it's book three, where Harry finally meets the Minister of Magic, And the minister's like totally chummy with him. And everyone's like, you just hung out with the minister of magic for dinner? And Harry's like, yeah, this is my life. Like, this is Percy's life. He's met Ares, Poseidon, Zeus, Hades, Hermes. Like, he's racking up the the 12 main gods. And he's been in this world for a year. A literal year. Like, he is famous. I would hate Percy. Okay. Okay, but let me go back to what you were saying.
0: I'm glad you got that off your chest.
1: I didn't need to get it off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to what you were saying about redeeming Luke. Chekhov's gun, and I'm going to say Chekhov's gun a lot because it's a big motif in, I mean, so Chekhov's gun, for those of you who don't know, it's a literary device or, or a rule that was written for, I'm blanking on Chekhov's first name, but Chekhov was a Russian um, playwright. And the rule is that if a gun is drawn in act one of a play, by act five, the gun will be fired, which is sort of like a a just a general rule of foreshadowing. But like, it's not a good plot device to have someone in a play have a gun if it's never going to be fired because the gun doesn't serve otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it's generally like more colloquially used as just like foreshadowing. But I feel like this very pointed line by Hermes to be like, you must redeem Luke. Is kind of a bit of a Chekhov's gun that like by the end of this five book series, perhaps we will end up redeeming Luke. And I'm pretty much in team camp. Luke shall be redeemed. But I want to know what you think, Asia.
0: Well, I very much enjoyed that fun fact with Charles because I did not know that. But I honestly don't remember what happens with Luke. So... I feel like guilty taking a team because I really want to be right since I should know already, (sighs) but I don't know if Luke is redeemed. And I, at this point in the book, if I had to guess, I guess if you're going to say that you think he can be redeemed, I might as well just take the opposite stance and say that I don't think he's going to be redeemed. But I honestly don't remember. And like I said, it's, it's going to make me really angry at the end of the series if I'm wrong. But I'll just say that's, that's my stance. He will not be redeemed.
1: Way to be difficult. <laughs> like, I'm just going to take the opposite of view. Also, I'm looking at my bookshelf and I do have Chekhov. His first name is Anton. Sorry, I'm going to have a lot of fun facts like these. I actually saw Chekhov play with one of the actresses of Downton Abbey. And one of the actors who was in The Hobbit, they were both in a production of Uncle Vanya that I saw. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. (laughs) But yeah, I think that, you know, Chekhov is a good place to end this episode. And I guess we'll see what happens next. And I think that as we get into this book and it's less exposition, I think we can probably cover ground more quickly. So... Let me say, hear what you think, Asia, but I think that we should divide this book into three chunks as we said we would, but I think that after that we can divide these books in half because they're pretty short and we're not going over like, this is a demigod anymore. So I feel like we can actually get into it um a little faster. So if it's okay with you, I think that we should finish this one in two more episodes and then do the other three in two episodes each.
0: Yeah, I think that sounds like a really great plan.
1: Great, then we'll do that and we'll be back next week with the second set of chapters from Percy Jackson, The Sea of Monsters, which will be chapters 8 through 14 if you're reading along with us, but I'll be here to summarize if you're not, and then we'll finish it the week after that.
0: Yes, so let us know or just stay in touch with us regarding anything on the Nerd Party website. You can head over to nerdparty.com contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at the Nerd party. To find me, I'm at asiabonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram.
1: And I'm on both Instagram and Twitter at C.E. Sheeland. Again, we're a brand new podcast. This is our first episode after release. And I'm like, how do I say this? And so make sure that if you enjoyed this, you rate and review us share it subscribe on whichever podcatcher you use check out the other fantastic podcasts on the nerd party network and stay in touch
0: thanks everyone we'll see you next week join the revolution Join the Nerd Party.